Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, we've all heard it said, be careful what you wish for. We remember the 1970s and the fearsome power of OPEC, the uh, oil-producing states, the mighty oil cartel. But in those days, oil was at a $100 a barrel, sometimes even more than that. Those days are gone for the foreseeable future. It's uh, really nice that uh, we have such low gasoline prices. Uh, But as our guest today has written, the chaos that could ensue in the oil heartlands of the planet from low oil prices and high supply is likely to create unpredictable new nightmares. It's been quite a while since Michael T. Clare was on this show, again talking about issues relating to oil. Michael Clare is a professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College out in Western Mass. He's also the author most recently of The Race for What's Left, His new article is called, With a Busted Business Model, Oil Economies Head for the Unknown. Michael Clare, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, just a few years ago, no one would have imagined anyone would write this as an opening sentence. Pity the poor petrostates. For decades, many in the U.S. have sought to break the power of the petrostates, the oil exporters. Now it's actually being done. The drop in prices, gas has been well below $3 a gallon for a long time. And this has been a boon to the American economy. Gas is cheap, but might it be coming at a high price in terms of global stability, Michael? Yep. I'm having a little trouble hearing. I'm sorry. All right. Well, gas is cheap, but what might be the price we pay in terms of global stability for this cheap gas ah yes well if you know we we, we've we've depended all these years on the productivity of what what i call petrostates states that that uh rely for their income on on exporting oil united states is an oil importing country but there are countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, Nigeria, Venezuela that are oil exporting countries, and their economy depends on exporting oil. And because we've we, we've depended on them 
on those countries all these years. Uh, they, their economy has boomed as a result, and we've been very heavily dependent on them. And we've, in many cases, uh, we've gotten deeply involved in their politics. We've invaded some of them. Uh, we have close ties with some of them, like Saudi Arabia, and so on and so forth. Now those countries are in a lot of trouble, and some of them are our allies, and that's not good for us. Uh, Nigeria is an ally, and Nigeria is in a lot of trouble. Mexico is an ally of the United States, and it's fighting a war against the drug cartels, and because oil prices are so low, the, the budget of the Mexican government has contracted, so they have less money to carry on all of their activities. So Mexico is in trouble, and when Mexico is in trouble, the United States is in trouble. So all of this impacts on us in numerous ways. Now, you could ask me more questions, and I'll do my best to get to the bottom of this. Oh, I will, absolutely. And when many people think of petro-states, Michael Clare, no doubt what usually first comes to mind is the Saudis with a steady source of great wealth. How has that affected their style of government? It hasn't exactly been a democracy or a Republican form of government. Yes. What, what, what might a royal, the royal family now be looking at domestically? Of course. Uh, well, we, we all know that the Saudi royal family has gotten exceedingly wealthy all these years because of all the oil that we buy from them, we and all the other customers for Saudi oil, uh, immensely wealthy. They earn hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And the way they've stayed in power, unlike some of the other autocrats of the Middle East, the way they've stayed in power is they pay off their population. They give them all kinds of subsidies, cheap housing, cheap gas, cheap electricity, uh, and jobs, guaranteed jobs, that you don't have to work very hard, you know, many, many subsidies and benefits. And that's kept the population reasonably satisfied. Right. On top of that, of course, there's the religious police. Oh, yeah. And the, the, all kinds of other police forces to keep dissidents down. But now... With oil prices half of what they were a year ago or so, even less than that, uh, they have less money to pay all these subsidies for their population. They're cutting back, and we have to worry about what that means. Will there be an Arab, uh, a Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia? And is that good for us or bad for us? Um, I think we could have a healthy debate about that, a little uh, freedom and democracy in Saudi Arabia might be a good thing. Right. It might also allow more space for chaos and for the Islamic State or uh, or Al Qaeda to take root there. So you could see why this is something that we have to worry about. Absolutely, we're talking about the poor demise of the petro states with all their incredible wealth and. You know, it sounds to me like what the Saudis have had for a long time is basically nepotism, the family ruling it, ruling there. Uh, and they, they've been smart enough to create, as you describe, a fairly large rainy day fund to cover any deficit spending. 
but hasn't it been the case that the royal Saudi family has been in fear of their own citizenry? I mean, they this royal family has been kind of troublemakers with their Wahhabi, uh, uh, you know, kind of extreme uh, Muslim, and they've been making a war on a rebellion in Yemen. How might that be affecting their domestic uh, stability, mixing in this uh, drop in the prices of oil? Might, might the royal family be so scared of their own population that they make war on their own population? No, I, 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 I don't think that's an immediate worry, uh, partly because, as you say, they, they have this rainy day fund. Right. <coughs> Pardon me. They have a lot of money stocked away, that they're drawn, but that's going to run out in a year or so if the prices remain low. So they have a few years in which to plan for the day when the rainy day fund runs out, and that's what they're beginning to do. I, I, I think they are worried about what will happen when all those subsidies disappear entirely. What will happen then? Uh, and I, I think what they realize is they have to create an alternative future for their young people. Saudi Arabia has one of the youngest populations in the world. Hmm. Half, half the population is, more than half the population is under 30. Um, probably half of them is under 25. Wow. So they have a lot of young people with hmm. high expectations, and they're going to have to come up with a plan to satisfy the aspirations of that very youthful population. And the current king, King Salman, has turned that job over to one of his sons, one of his younger sons, Mohammed bin Salman, the deputy crown prince, who's only 31. And the deputy crown prince has come up with a plan, Saudi Vision 2030, to diversify the economy away from oil. And, and in my mind, this is revolutionary, that Saudi Arabia, the world's leading oil producer, is saying that the, the oil age is going to come to an end, and we had better come up with a plan to diversify our economy in a non, uh, on a non-petroleum basis and create jobs for our population not based on oil exports. This, to me, is saying we, we've entered a new age here. Wow. We certainly have. And again, uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Michael Clare of Hampshire College about uh, the difficulties, pity the poor petro-states, <laughs> that uh, the price of oil has gone down so low. So you're not as concerned as other people I've spoken to have been concerned that uh, there might be an uprising uh down the road a piece, uh, not that far ahead, uh, against the, the royal family, demanding that the people demanding democracy. But, but you're of the opinion, Michael, that uh, they can probably keep a lid on this for a while, and if they diversify enough and plan for the future enough, that there might not be an uprising so that, the, uh, that, that Saudi Arabia may remain stable for a while. Is that correct? I, I think this is one of those things where nobody could predict right. for sure. Right. All I'm saying is that uh, the new Saudi leadership, mm-hmm. uh, especially the people around uh, the, the deputy crown prince who seems to be running things, has an appreciation of the nature of the problem, oh, that's which good. previous <laughs> leaders didn't. Right. He, he does seem to have, he's only 31, so Oof. he's wow. closer in age to most of the population, and I think has a better grasp of the need 
for this revolutionary transformation of the country. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be able to pull it off. I think there are a lot of obstacles to transforming Saudi Arabia into something more modern, uh, many obstacles. So the project may fail, in which case we could have the kind of chaos you're talking about. But at, at, at least there are signs that the leadership understands the need for change and is preparing to do something about it. Uh-huh. Now, a place where we don't see that happening mm-hmm. that has me very worried is Russia. Russia is in an equally uh, desperate situation right now. Russia produces just about as much oil as Saudi Arabia and is almost as equally dependent on oil and natural gas exports for its economy as the Saudis. Um, But there's no indication that Vladimir Putin or the people around him are prepared to make any transformation in the Russian economy. It's he, he's digging in deeper in dependence on oil and gas exports, and and I think this is going to doom Russia, Russian economy to stagnation. Hmm. And there, I I I can't imagine what might happen, but I but I suspect there's going to be a lot of trouble there, and and that has me deeply worried. Interesting. Well, we've talked recently on Keeping Democracy Live about uh, the the NATO pressure that's uh, building around uh, Russia's border, and they are focused on that very much, and that's got to be of major concern to Putin and the uh, the people in power. So this oil thing, wow, that's that's a kind of scary state, and we've seen in Russian history in the past that uh, the leadership doesn't always uh, react well to uh, to any kind of pressures. Uh, it can be. Well, we've seen a lot of violence there. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, we're speaking with uh, Michael Clare, Professor of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, author most recently of The Race for What's Left. His new article is called, With a Busted Business Model, Oil Economies Head for the Unknown. Another petro-dependent state, of course, is Venezuela. Many Americans, at least on the left, were favorably impressed when former leader Hugo Chavez took that great oil wealth and used it to directly help the poor. He took on the big oil powers and, and helped the people of his country. Now with uh, uh, he is gone, of course, and with the drop in the value of oil, how is that affecting their domestic stability in Venezuela? Oh, right now, Venezuela is a country on, on the brink of utter collapse. And it, and, and it is a tragic story, what's happened there. Uh, as as you say, Hugo Chavez did show great promise. He, I think, he genuinely sought to raise the quality of life, the standard of living of millions of poor people in Venezuela, and they loved him for that. Um, he took uh, billions of dollars from the oil economy of Venezuela and devoted it to what he called missions to the poor. Uh, building housing, uh, medical clinics, schools, kindergartens, all kinds of social services, lifting millions of people out of poverty. The problem is that it was all based on high oil prices and and continuing flow of high oil, oil prices, high oil income into Venezuela. And 
you know, he didn't foresee the possibility that that would come to an end, and he didn't prepare for it. He didn't create a rainy day fund. He didn't diversify the economy. So when prices began to fall, his, his successor, uh, Nicolas Maduro, the current president, right. hasn't been able to sustain those missions to the poor. They've had to scrap all of that, and the economy is falling apart and people are turning against Maduro. Yes. Um, and it, it, it's a, it's a situation, the government only functions two days a week, there's no <sighs> electricity, there's no water, so you, you could have a civil war occurring in Venezuela. Hmm. And certainly uh, the U.S. has a long history of an interest in that part of the world, shall we say, and uh, tried to uh, topple uh, participating with a lot of the uh, people on the right in Venezuela, tried to topple the government of Hugo Chavez back in the early 90s. I wonder how, I can't help but think that this might somehow, the, the instability in Venezuela might uh, pull uh, U.S. Uh, agencies, shall we say, into the domestic situation in Venezuela. And boy, it's, it's more than a little scary there for, uh, for the stability of the region. I'm sure that there people in Washington who are watching very closely what's going on. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of interest in all of this. Not bad. I think some of the paranoia of President Maduro is exaggerated about what the U.S. is doing. I, I don't believe at this point in his presidency that President Obama has any interest in getting involved in any messy kind of intervention in Venezuela or, you know, anything ugly. Uh, but there's there's a there's a real humanitarian disaster developing hmm. in Venezuela. Uh, there's there's food shortages, water shortages. There's uh, health risks because there's a drought on top of everything oh else. There's not enough water. So I think everybody should should be concerned about what's happening there and the plight of the people. Well, it certainly is an, an opening for uh, other interventionists that may be coming down the pike. Uh, but Nigeria is another country. People here in America don't think about Nigeria very much, but they have been also blessed with, a, with great reserves of oil. D tell us a bit about what's happening in Nigeria and how perhaps that, that might have an impact on us in some way. Yes, uh, you know, Venezuela is an interesting country because it has the potentially potential to to be a success story. It has vast reserves of oil and natural gas. Um, it has many talented people. It could be a wealthy country. You're talking about Nigeria? It, or it, it, Its economy is now equal to that of South Africa, but there's also oh. tremendous corruption. And the corruption... I believe, is a natural, inherent byproduct hmm. of an oil economy. Yeah. Uh, scholars call this the oil curse, that there's <laughs> something about the production of oil that inevitably leads to corruption and authoritarianism. You know, I could explain why that might be so, because it, 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 it's, uh, oil revenues are collected by whoever is in power, and the amounts are so vast, and there's no transparency, that, you know, it, it just leads to corruption. 
And Nigeria has seen that, you know, more than almost any other country. It, 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 it has a wealthy elite, you know, with gated communities and Mercedes, but most people live on a dollar or two a day, and that's been the case since independence. And, and, and yet this is a country that produces billions of dollars a year in oil. So you have to figure that all of that oil money is going into the pockets of a handful of very wealthy people in the capital, Abuja, and not very much of it is going trickling down to mm. ordinary people. And the, periodically, ordinary people have revolted, and it's taken different forms. There was the Biafra Revolution oh, in the really? 1970s. Uh-huh. There have been nonviolent upheavals of the Ojani people, Ogani people, uh, and there have been insurgencies in the Niger Delta by men, the movement for the emancipation of the Niger Delta. And now there's Boko Haram. Yes, uh, Boko Haram has horrible features to it. It's a despicable movement, yeah. but it reflects the anger that people feel towards the corruption of the central government. And this is one way in which oil corruption affects us. Yeah, it certainly does. So with with the tremendous instability in Nigeria, and it does seem amazing that, you know, if, if corruption is so blatant, if so many, you know, such a large percentage of the population understands, is aware that there is corruption, that there's graft, that the money that's coming in is not being used uh, fairly and equitably, how can that not lead to anger and and frankly violence so this situation in nigeria boko haram being the most obvious portion of it uh, how, how do you think that could impact us in some way i mean it's across a very large ocean but how how might the instability in nigeria eventually uh, affect us on on this side of the atlantic well american troops are are in are in nigeria working with the government so this is part of the larger war on terrorism that the United States is fighting all over Africa. Uh, there are special forces teams engaged in fighting, and there, there, there is a U.S. military presence in Nigeria as well. So we are involved. Now it's small scale compared to what yeah. U.S. forces are doing in, say, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but the, the U.S. presence in Africa is growing. It's all over the continent. And uh, I, I think this is, it should be a concern to everyone, uh, partly because we hear so little about it. Yes. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where these forces are, what they're doing. And uh, we don't hear about it except very rarely that a drone strike kills someone. But this is, it does create a backlash against the United States. And it does, it does lead to anti-American violence. So we are affected by all of this. I'm reminded of something that sounded familiar back in the early 60s. There was a little-known country far away with some kind of American military involvement with a very corrupt government that people weren't very much aware of. The place was called, of course, Vietnam. 
and it's easy for things like this to grow. And, you know, having yet another hotspot where people are angry at the Americans for supporting a corrupt government, not a pretty picture. But there is at least one positive result of this uh, drop in oil prices and, and drop in demand, and that's, of course, climate change, correct? I mean, this has got to be something really positive. Well, how does all this relate to climate change is an interesting question. And I, 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 I think we're, we're just seeing the beginning of a very long trend. Uh, the, the, price, the, the price of oil at this point in time, if, if you went back five years ago to the predictions made by the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, oil should be now about $125 right. a barrel right. or higher. That, those were the predictions. Conventional and wisdom. That it's, you know, $50 a barrel. Not even. So you have to ask, why is that? And there are a number of explanations for this. I mean, one of them is we're producing too much, too much oil because of all of the fracking in North Dakota and Texas. We're just producing so much oil that the world can't absorb it all, mm. and prices uh, fall as a result. But the other side of the coin is that demand for oil is beginning to slow down, and that's because of climate change, or, or rather, because of climate change, people are becoming more concerned yes. about uh, the consumption of fossil fuels and carbon emissions and are beginning to take steps to reduce their consumption of fossil fuels. People are switching to electric cars. Yep. Not yet in huge numbers. It's starting. But in enough numbers to slow down the demand for oil from what it was expected to be at this time, which is why oil is selling at $50 a barrel instead of the predicted $125 a barrel or so. And that's, monument, that's a monumental difference for the economy of the world and for the status or for the survival of governments around the world. And the U.S., are we, our policies are various different agencies and departments that, that might be affected by this, the Energy Department, when it's not developing nuclear power, which is doing most of the time. But do, do our policies need to adjust? Are, do you think the United States is aware of what's going on with the, the petro countries that have been so dependent on us, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Russia, things like that? Or do we need to look at some real policy changes? Are we keep, keeping up with it enough, or are we just sort of keeping our heads in the sand, as it were? Oh, well, now, you're, we, we're, we're in an election, election year here, and noticed, yeah. one of the underlying themes of the election. We have one candidate, uh, who Hillary Clinton, who said that she wants to make the United States, I heard her say, a green energy superpower. And then we have another candidate, Donald Trump, who, want, who says he wants to restore fossil fuels as the basis of the American economy. <laughs> and depending on the outcome of the election, the United States could go one way or the other. He wants to renege on the Paris climate deal mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, renege on the clean power plan that the Obama administration has initiated. 
So we don't know which way this country is going to go. It could go to be more like, uh, say, Germany, uh, which is the world's leader in solar and wind power, Ah. or it could be more like Russia, a a totally fossil fuel-dependent country. That's what this election, among other things, but this is one of the major, will be one of the major themes in the election. And we do have to pay attention to what's going on in in these areas. I mean, Saudi Arabia, they're the big boys in the area there, and uh, it matters to us about their stability. And, uh, you know, a lot of us might prefer a different form of government there, but uh, their stability matters a great deal to us, as with Venezuela and all South America. It's a big deal. Thank you so much, Michael Clare, for being with us. Uh, Your new book is called uh, The Race for What's Left. Thanks again for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, and this is a big part of Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks a lot, Michael Clare. It's a pleasure always. Thank you. We'll be, we'll be back in uh, just a couple of minutes, switching subjects entirely. Sometimes it's a big fall when you're up that high as Saudi Arabia is. Yikes, but they got to prepare for it. Well, switching subjects away from oil, yesterday I had my first annual Medicare checkup. Yes, I am that age. To say that doctors have mixed feelings on the effectiveness of Medicare is, is quite evident. It's been in existence since President Johnson finally got it passed in 1965, Medicare is a great thing. Let's face it. I was, I was, that was the nicest thing about turning 65. And uh, it needs work. In the national discussion over health care in general, the traditional Democratic approach is to call for a simple and fair system of Medicare for all. Our guest today is Andy Lazarus, a medical doctor who has a new book out called Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our health care system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. Thanks for being with us, uh, Andy, Dr. Lazarus. That's great being here, Bert. Well, I, I love the idea of Medicare. It's clearly the best thing about turning 65. You say you are of similar mind. Is it, like its predecessor, Social Security, a great thing, an essential part 
of the social security social safety net yeah i, I mean i think medicare is one of the greatest things that uh, ever passed um congress and we can thank president johnson for that yes and i think it's it's done an amazing job of actually extending longevity and keeping people comfortable and giving people uh you know a safety net as they get older which really did not exist before that so so it is i mean it is like social security in that way and people pay into it um, to some extent. Uh, most people take out a lot more than they put in. Yeah, the, the problem with Medicare is more that um, the viability of it is in question now. And because of those of us who really love Medicare worry about it the most um, because of that. We want it to go on forever. We don't want there to be restrictions. And we think there are easy ways to fix it that aren't being addressed right now. Easy ways to fix it. Well, that always sounds good. And, and I'll tell you, when I was with my doctor yesterday getting my first Medicare checkup, without his knowing about this upcoming discussion, my doctor expressed frustration that Medicare only allows treatment when there is a disease. My guess is a lot of doctors feel this way. I wonder if you could comment on that aspect. Medicare is completely based on diagnoses. We have to make people sick, and then we can get paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, people have taken that to a far level. I mean, there's some doctors who do procedures who the only way they can do the procedures is to label people with illness. So it is. It becomes a game of making people sick. And, and that is a, one of the many frustrating parts of it that does not really have to be there. That uh, it, it seems ridiculous. Now, one uh, study estimated, uh, one study cited estimated that some 30,000 senior Americans die each year due to excessive care. What? Yeah, and that could even be uh, expanded. Um, I, I see many people injured from excessive care. So, so what is excessive care? Really? Because there, there's an idea that the more we do, the more we look, the more we treat, the better people will be. And one of Medicare's flaws, because remember, it was created at a time where they didn't have CAT scans or MRIs or open-heart surgery or a lot of the things that people think are routine now. Um, so it paid for uh, us to do treatments and us to do tests, and as we're getting more and more of these tests and Medicare is willing to pay carte blanche for everything, there is a danger of doing too many tests and putting people on too many drugs and treating too many conditions. We know um, that many tests have false positives. Now, I'll give you an example. Cardiologists often will do a stress test, and a lot of the cardiologists say this is just thorough. They want to they make sure people are okay, and they, they sometimes do it annually, which Medicare will pay for, but stress tests have problems. The vast majority of stress tests that are abnormal are false positives. And when they pursue those false positive tests, oh they could hurt people. So they think about 20 out of 1,000 people who get stress tests actually get stroke, heart attack, or death from the stress test because of subsequent testing that occurs. And the other part of the stress test is that of people who get heart attacks, about 65 to 80% of them would have had a normal stress test the day before the heart attack. So there's a test Medicare is paying for that can cause harm, does not really pick up what it's supposed to pick up, and yet it's considered a thorough test that people or doctors are doing regularly. And I wonder, you know, back at the time some 50 years ago uh, when Medicare was created, I believe Alzheimer's and maybe other forms of dementia, which are pretty common now, we're not even identified as a medical condition. There's a huge amount of that now growing every year, it seems. How, how is Alzheimer's and, and, and the uh, prevalence of that, how is that affecting uh, the program of Medicare, how it works? And, and I think, you know, Alzheimer's is very reflective of, of some of the problems we have in Medicare. 
because clearly there there was still dementia and Alzheimer's back in 1965. I would think. But many people considered it just a normal part of aging. Yes. And as technology has taken over and as we've developed a mentality that we can find and fix everything, and as that's being paid for by Medicare, Alzheimer's has taken on the the he's the poster child of a condition where we are actually over-treating, and we're not treating the right things. For instance, most people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's get extensive testing, MRIs, they go to specialists, sometimes super specialists to try to treat them, but the numbers don't add up for that. About three out of a thousand people who have tests for Alzheimer's are found to have reversible disease, and most of those are found in the primary care office. And then they're put on drugs that, that we know simply don't work. If they do work, they work for a few months. People are put on one or more drugs. Again, all this is paid for. The side effects of the drugs are pretty significant. Oh, yeah. And it's giving people a false hope that we can actually cure this disease. Whereas what people really want with, with uh, Alzheimer's is exercise, which we know works. They want mm. to be able to send their loved ones to daycare centers where they can get socialization. Mm. They need a break themselves. So some caregiver support would be good. Um, and they want to keep their loved one out of the hospital, n- none of which is covered by Medicare. Hospitalization is Medicare's carte blanche for what you do when someone gets sick. Yeah. And we know it's terrible for people with dementia. So Alzheimer's is a, is a situation where Medicare has not adapted to the change. Um, Medicare could easily and much more inexpensively treat this condition in a way that's much more satisfactory with, for people with the disease. Yeah, as one who uh, went with that with my own mother. Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. That's tough. Ah. Very tough. And Medicare has very little to offer you for that. And a lot of it comes out of your own pocket. Yes, that is true. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Andy Lazarus, MD, a primary care physician specializing in geriatrics, currently directs a group practice in Columbia, Maryland, in addition to being the medical director of several assisted living facilities and retirement communities. And he's got a new book out called Curing Medicare, A Doctor's View on How Our Healthcare System is Failing Older Americans and How We Can Fix It. And that makes me think about, you know, some basic uh, concerns that I have about how we can keep democracy alive. And it seems that President Obama's Affordable Health Care Act is just the latest in a long line of attempts to address improving affordability and fairness of health care delivery. And, and, you know, that's that's a good thing to do. It's a decent step. A few years ago, I learned, and this you may know this, I'm not sure, Dr. Lazarus, that a previous president, President Truman, in his attempt to align health care delivery with the rest of Roosevelt's New Deal, President Truman was in favor of socialized medicine. And according to what I've read, Polling showed that 75% of Americans supported socialized, nationalized uh, medicine. But the Southern Democratic senators feared that the blood of black citizens might, oh my goodness, mix with the blood of white patients in government-run hospitals. And that's what killed it in 1948. Of course, many presidents have tried since then, though never truly as socialized as probably FDR would have preferred, Obama pushed through the Affordable Care Act, which creates a captive market for the insurance industry. Uh, Tell us about the power of the insurance industry in in how the Affordable Care Act uh, came to be and how it's functioning now. And in your mind, might it be time soon 
this is a bigger question, for the for-profit health insurance industry to no longer exist. So there's a lot of talking points in there. Uh, and you're right. I, I mean, attempts at um, universal health care have been going on about every 20 years there's an attempt. I, I consider what President Johnson did um, a first step of his attempt to do the same thing. And even today, the polling suggests that most Americans believe health care is a right and that people should have access to health care in a nonprofit way. But, and, I, and I have to credit President Obama for trying something because he's the, I mean, President Clinton tried it early on in his presidency and it just yeah. flopped yeah. because of the opposition. There is a huge corporate opposition to any kind of attempt to make health care more reasonable and affordable. And frankly, part of that is what makes it so tough to fix Medicare, too. Mm. But, yeah, the insurance companies, um, the hospitals, the pharmaceutical industries, doctor organizations have a stranglehold on many people who are making laws that would improve health care. And when I say Medicare is easy to fix, and I lay it out in my book um, and in my blogs, it is. It's, it's easy to fix. And, and the way the Medicare reformers are going about it is a convoluted way <laughs> is really satisfying many of the special interests that uh, have affected Congress because those, those people who are reforming Medicare are beholden to Congress, and Congress is beholden to a lot of groups that are really afraid of change. All along the way, the AMA has been opposed to any change. They didn't want Medicare to begin with. Right. Now they don't want it to change. And they like the way things are right now. So I do, th- I do think it's time we have a universal system. I think we don't have to have a European-style universal system. I think we could have American-style universal system. And I-, I think it's something that could pass if we learn the lessons of previous failures in attempts to do that. Well, one thing I often say on this show is that uh, the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But we we c- never learn from history. No. And we should. <laughs> we should. <laughs> you would think, my goodness gracious. So many different... One, one thing that Americans do not like is what's called rationing of care. So it, it's, it, it's true there was a big racist component of, of the failure of Truman's initial proposal, but the other big opposition was because there was rationing involved. And immediately the organization said they're going to take your health care away. The big brother is going to tell you what you can and can't do. Every time, even in under HMOs, that, that comes up. And we know if, we, if we're going to do a system in America, there can be no rationing of care. And you can't have someone telling people they can and can't do things. And I, I truly believe, and I lay out you know, a very good argument for this, I think, and others have done this too, that if you give patients good information, accurate information, so we gave them information about the stress test that we talked about. Yes. And the doctors were either required to or were given certain uh, you know, protocols where they had to discuss any test they do with, with that accurate information and have shared decision-making. A lot of patients would choose not to take this aggressive route, and that alone would enable universal health care because it would cut costs dramatically, quality would improve, and if we cut the cost of Medicare... Uh, by 25%, we could extend it. Hillary Clinton um, has wanted to extend it to age 50. Bernie Sanders, of course, wanted to extend it to everyone. everyone. But we can't do that until we um, fix Medicare and make it financially feasible. So shared decision-making plus Medicare right now will not treat people in homes. People have to go to the hospital to get the benefits of Medicare. Much cheaper to be treated at home for many conditions, and that's what people want. 80% of elderly prefer that. And the quality and the outcome are better. So simple changes like that can make Medicare viable, and then we could expand it to everyone. 
Well, let's just take a look at, at you know, simple dollars. How much uh, is does Medicare cost now, and how much do you think could be actually saved and make it a better system in the same time? I think, you know, 25% of Medicare's total cost is spent on the last month or so of someone's life. Uh-huh. And and the vast majority of people um, who end up in that predicament never wanted to be in a hospital or an ICU to begin with. Yeah, for sure. So so right off the bat, you can you can chop a lot of money off. We also know that areas of the country that are heavily specialized spend more money, do more tests, hospitalizations higher, outcome is much worse. And again, what we have moved to become a specialized society. And Medicare has total control over who's trained as a doctor. They finance the training system. They alone come up with the salaries of doctors. It's not a free market that's doing that. So if we created a a primary care-oriented medical system, which, again, is easy to do, and then if we simply shifted care to homes, there'd be so many groups that would jump at the opportunity to provide care at home. We have the technology to do that. Hospitals could be involved in that endeavor. That would shave a ton of money off, and that that's all been shown. None of that is part of Medicare reform right now. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long, long time. I remember being as a little kid with uh, uh, my grandmother, whose last name had been Lazarus, spelled slightly differently, but that's aside the point. And and the doctor came to her house, and it was a, w- a wonderful thing, and it, it felt good. And speaking of grandmothers, your grandmother, like so many, believed that it would make no sense to see a primary care doctor when she could see a whole bunch of specialists. That's a very popular uh, attitude. Uh, how, how, is that wrong? How do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I, had, I was in medical school. My grandmother was making her, her romp from doctor to doctor to doctor. Yeah. She saw about eight different doctors. And, and, and she was in you know late 80s, early 90s when all this was occurring. Very healthy person, no problems. But she saw her kidney guy or heart guy or stomach guy. It became almost a social thing for her, um, and she believed they all were specialists. The problem is that two of them threw her into the hospital by giving her medicines that were inappropriate. Oh, God. And bo- they were both the same medicine, um, giving her to her once for shakes. They thought she had Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. and it gave her hallucinations. She saw birds oh, having a party in her apartment. Oh, my. And she ended up in the, in the hospital, and then several months later, another one of her specialists gave her the same medicine. And then the end of her life occurred when, when another specialist gave her something that caused her to aspirate food into her lungs and go into the intensive care unit. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's, a dangerous, it's a dangerous game to be jumping around from specialist to specialist because specialists do tend to over-treat, um, and specialists do not, are not able to look at the whole picture. And I think especially in the elderly, that's crucially important. I wasn't able to convince my grandmother of that, but but yeah. I wish I could. But but what I mean, there is this widely held belief, like primary care physician, they cover so many different things, but the specialists get paid a lot more money. I mean, if you got a hand problem, you see a hand doctor. You got an ear problem, you see an otolaryngologist. Why isn't doesn't that work pretty well right now? Well, if you um if you see a specialist, they're going to be focused on one thing. So to give you an example, you go to your cardiologist, and your cardiologist sees that your blood pressure is a little higher than your cardiologist wants to see it, right. and puts you on a blood pressure medicine, or two or three, and then says, you know what, you should be on a statin cholesterol medicine, because everyone should be on a statin cholesterol medicine. 
And then you walk out of there on four medicines, and you might even be on a blood thinner to boot. And as your generalist, I know that when your blood pressure goes below a certain number that might not be the perfect number, that you get dizzy, that you fall, that you get confused, and you mm-hmm. get tired. Mm-hmm. I also know that these statin cholesterol medicines make your legs hurt and make you weak and make mm. you tired. And when I've talked to you about these things, we've talked about the pros and cons of these medicines. When we look at your whole person, instead of just looking at the one organ that the cardiologist uh-huh. is looking at, uh-huh. so what, we, what we in primary care do is we take a look at everything together, and we, we ask you, we say, what are your values? What, are, what, what do you want? What are your expectations? Do you, if you huh. want to live a few days longer, we can put you on the statin if it makes you tired. Because that's about how long, much longer people live when they're in their 80s on statins. Um, but if you're getting tired, if your legs are weak, it's okay to go off the statins. So, so we don't have to fix one organ when it's going to hurt other things. And that, that's the danger of specialization. Uh-huh. Very focused care not worrying about how that care impacts the whole body. Ah, interesting. That, that's uh, good to hear. And, you know, again, the title of this show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And, and I have find, found that with a great many large-scale programs that have been around a while, whether they're private or public, uh, government or for-profit, a big part of the problem is often the inability of people who have a stake in what's going on to be able to actually participate in how it functions and, you know, give their input. Top-down programs, I find, are certainly anti-democratic, and thus many logical improvements are stifled. They're not heard. I'm guessing this might also be the case with Medicare as we see it today, that it's top-down, that people who are affected by it have no way to participate. What, what are your thoughts on this, Dr. Lazarus? I think that's the crux of the problem. I think there are many people who are proclaim themselves to be experts in healthcare who are not practicing medicine or who did a long time ago. Um, they might be economists. People who are actual patients uh, are not consulted. Certainly primary care doctors are always left out of the loop. The, the only primary care doctors that would ever be talked to are people in academics who see patients rarely and do a lot of research. So I think this is a a perfect example where those of us on the bottom, if you ask myself and my patients how to fix the system, you put us in a room, we'll have the answer by the end of lunch. And and it'll be quick and easy because we know how to do it. We've lived through it. I live through it every single day on on both ends because I run my practice and I also practice. So I see the medical Mm. side and the financial side. Mm. And my patients see exactly what they can and can't do. So I do think it would it would behoove the leaders of our country to actually listen to some primary care doctors and to some groups of patients rather than relying on this top-down approach, which I have to tell you, under the even the Affordable Care Act, has been yeah. the approach that's been favored, no, top-down. Seems to always be the case, and and always the case, right? I mean, it it was. I remember uh, you know a book I read about World War II called Citizen Soldiers. They talked about how when America landed in France, the, um, the generals had no idea about the terrain and how to deal with it, and it was the people who were farmers and other soldiers who figured out how to, how to get through France and get to Germany. Or up to the generals, they had no idea. I think that's true with almost every system in this country, hmm. and certainly the medical system is, is one example of it that's crucial. Yeah, it, it does seem to be the case in so many situations. I mean, uh, 
Uh, you think about uh, that old song about uh, waist deep in the big muddy and the big fool says to push on <laughs> when people who are actually exactly. in the muddy could figure out a better way around it. And many medical economists you know, look to the Euro- European healthcare system as, as a model, but you suggest that there are several models that exist right here. So, for instance... I think you have to you have to take a look at the models that have um, that have worked to some extent, and there's no perfect model, right, but there's some that have been more effective than others. And, and I'll predicate that with the the statement I said before that the European system does have a lot of rationing of care. And for instance, if you want a knee replacement, it might take six months to get that, and a system like that is not going to pass in this country. Right. Um, but if you look at the VA system, um, where the quality of care, despite all the negative press, the quality of care is consistently high. The outcomes for a population that's very sick uh, exceed outcomes for healthier populations under more private insurance plans, and the satisfaction uh, rate is high. Um, that's, that's a good example of a system that, with a little tweaking, can be made u- more universal. Um, some, of the, some of the HMOs also have been very effective. I worked in an HMO where the doctors actually were in charge of decision-making. So we didn't have to go to a big board to get things done. And we were, we were able to keep people out of the hospital. We were able to listen to our patients' needs. And we saved a ton of money, and patients were incredibly happy, and outcome was very good. By just being able to control the reins of the money, we didn't have to follow a lot of the rules that are imposed <laughs> on us from Medicare. So look, looking at quality HMOs, looking at the VA system, uh-huh. I think we could design a system here that would be an American a unique American universal health care system. I think whenever we talk about socialized medicine and we talk about the European system, it's an automatic turnoff. Yes. And people turn their head away. Yeah. But when we talk about a system that gives rights to everyone to have health care and that they can make decisions, the patients are part of the decision, everyone's going to be interested in that. And that, that could work. Interesting. The book is called Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how a health care system is failing older Americans, and how we can fix it. A, a sustainable, well, one thing people have been afraid of, and, you know, oftentimes when people hear any kind of socialized anything, they, they just, they stop listening. And one of the things, the fear that was built up by good old uh, Sarah Palin about death panels, I mean, it seems to me there are, the insurance industry now has death panels. They decide who gets care and who doesn't. But I have to tell you, when my father was in his last days, he was in an intensive care unit, and I can't imagine how much money that cost. Of course, it was my father, and I wanted to, you know, the best that could possibly be done. You talk about rationing, perhaps. This is kind of a thorny issue, is it not? It, 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 I, once Sarah Palin brought up that word, it, it was it was a very dangerous misnomer. Oh, of course. Um, and and certainly we we choose not to use it. But if you were going to use the word death panel, the death panel would be the people who go to the ICU to the intensive care unit in their last days. Those are the people who have to suffer, and and we know statistically and from all our experience that that does not keep people alive, and they're yeah. at the end of life. Mm-hmm. What what people want is to be able to stay at home and to be given what we call palliative care. Their, their treatment is based on their comfort. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we're letting them die by any means. We're still treating them aggressively at home, but we're making sure they stay comfortable. And that is a life panel. That, that's what mm-hmm. people are, are mm-hmm. really looking for. And I think any type of health care system we have has to enable people to get full and total care at home when they want it 
and get full and total palliative care, even if they're they're not at the end of life, so that they their needs could be met. And that that's certainly not a death panel because that's something that a, a vast majority of Americans support, and which currently insurance will not pay for. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. I know my father would have preferred that to to what actually happened. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, most would. people wouldn't, and, and it would save a lot. I mean, it would make Medicare viable to do. Uh, to have a system like that, it's it's amazing to me, and, and the reason I wrote the book, yes, is because my feeling is what makes Amer- what would make Medicare viable and survivable is exactly what everyone wants, and exactly what the highest quality medicine is, and it's just striking to me that people that the system is going in the opposite direction when the fix is so easy and would be so universally supported. And my sense is there's, there, there's movement in this way. People are ready for some kind of change like this. I mean, you must have some degree of optimism, uh, Dr. Lazarus. I, I have, I have uh, speckles of optimism <laughs> at times. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you, the, the reforms right now that are coming out of Medicare are driving a lot of people out of primary care and certainly uh, pushing a lot of people out of accepting Medicare patients because they're very burdensome. Hmm. There's a lot of protocol medicine. So we treat everyone exactly the same. We check a lot of boxes off, and then we get graded based on whether we do things as they say. An example is the the example I gave before: the person who went to the cardiologist and their blood pressure was lowered too much, and right. they put in statins, which made them weak and tired. Yeah, all that is part of new protocols by Medicare. So if I oh, get geez. their blood pressure higher so they feel better and take them off the statins, I actually fail the Medicare protocols. So in helping my patients, I'm actually going to fail. And a, a large part of my pay is going to be tied to that starting next year. So, oh yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic in some ways about the talk. I'm getting a little pessimistic about the direction, and I'm hoping that you know, when the new administration right. comes in, which we expect to be Hillary Clinton, um, that she will talk to some people and move Medicare in a more sensible direction. Boy, let's hope so. The book is fascinating book, good timing, Curing Medicare, a doctor's view of how our healthcare system is failing older Americans and how we could fix it. The author, Dr. Andy Lazarus. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, doing your part to help keep democracy alive. And then thank you very much. I enjoyed it. All right. Likewise. Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Somewhere.